Thank you, Lori. Um, when we have a lot of announcements, our strategy is to break them up so that maybe you'll remember them better. And so we have one more announcement. Um, it's kind of a communication thing. Anyway, uh, for the last three years, JP and Carrie Tanner have been leading our student ministry uh, redemption community, and they've done a magnificent job, and we really appreciate uh, what they've been doing. They've kind of led our team uh, in doing that. Uh, they grew up the ministry from about uh, four students to uh, a robust ministry of 15 to 20 students. Uh, and this last May, we celebrated the graduation of nine high school seniors uh, moving on. Uh, and JP and Carrie got to a point um, in their life, they're in a kind of in a season of life where they, they needed a break from that ministry. Uh, in fact, uh, JP and Carrie are still around. Uh, JP is, is one of the two who's who is teaching our finance class on Wednesday night, as a matter of fact. But uh, they, they thought it was time maybe to, to, to take a break from that ministry, and so we've reorganized the, um, the student ministry team. And on that team, is, uh, we, we have Stephanie Shoemate, who's been on that team in the past. Uh, we also have added Chad Johnson, who is a student at Grand Canyon University, and he is now going to be doing an internship at Redemption Arcadia for the, for the rest of this school year. So all the way until May, I've been meeting with Chad, and we're really excited to have him uh, on board. Uh, also uh, on that student ministry team, my wife, Jackie, and our oldest daughter, uh, Shelby. And then uh, taking, uh, kind of going into the slot of JP and Carrie Tanner, uh, I want to introduce to you who's, who's going to be doing that and, and uh, helping us lead. So... Um, this is Vinny Dufresne. He's going to be in charge of our <laughs> children's ministry. No, this <laughs> he, he doesn't say much, but he, he leads really well. This is James Dufresne. A lot of you know him and his wife, Jillian. And Vinny, of course, they are going to be leading our student ministry. They're having their first sort of organizational meeting this Wednesday night to kind of get together and figure that out. Um, the reason I wanted to bring this to your attention, though, is because uh, we kind of need to know Who's out there that would be interested in getting your kids involved in this redemption community, this, this ministry? And so we're looking for junior high and senior high students. Uh, so if you could email us or contact us in some way at the office, the uh, best thing to do would be to email Stephanie. But email any of us. It would be really helpful for us to start getting organized and getting in contact uh, with all the students who will be involved in this ministry as well. Okay? All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you heard the passage this morning. We are back in Mark again, uh, working our way through Mark. We're going to be finishing by Advent, and we've been uh, going through these, uh, these passages of, of Holy Week in the temple where it, Jesus is just having encounter after encounter after encounter with what I call the professional religious people, the perps for, for short. And, and again, a different set of perps, the Sadducees come now and they present Jesus with another problem, which is nothing new. They're trying to get an answer from him that they can use to trap him or use to talk about an, an alliance that he has that he shouldn't have, whatever it is. And, and so they ask him this weird question about marriage in the resurrection. And, and I would say that, that Jesus' answer here is possibly the best answer that he gives just from a human standpoint. I love this answer. Possibly the best answer that he gives to any of these vexing problems that the perps have been bringing to him. But I will also tell you that his answer is very troubling for a number of people. A lot of people push back against the answer that he gives and have a lot of questions. And so we have some, we have some work to do here. Uh, the big idea this morning is this. Knowing the scriptures and the power of God gives us life 
and hope. That is embedded in Jesus' answer to the question in verses 24 through 27 of this passage. Knowing the scriptures and the power of God gives us life and hope. Um, the way I had it worded originally was, was a little bit more negative because it's exactly what Jesus says. Knowing the, power, uh, knowing, uh, the scriptures and the power of God keeps you from being wrong keeps you from being wrong. I thought I'd put a little better twist on it and, and uh, inherently this is what Jesus is saying is that if you know the scriptures and the power of God, this is where you're gonna be able to find life and hope and we're all looking for uh, life and hope. So let me just reread the question uh, part of this for you again and we'll start unpacking that. And Sadducees, we'll explain who they are, came to Jesus uh, and they say that there's no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man, the brother, must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, here comes the setup. There were seven brothers. Uh, the, the first took a wife. And when he died, left no offspring, no children. And so the second brother took her, and he died leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. This is a, this is a very sad story, apparently. Uh, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall we be? For the seven had her as, as a wife. What they're referring to is in the Mosaic Law, there's this, uh, the principle of leveret or Levite marriage. In other words, um, a brother, if he's married and he dies, the other brother, if he's not married, is going to step in and take his place. And the purpose of this, God set up this system. The purpose of it was to protect the woman and family and her assets. That was the whole idea behind this. This was God's way of, of protecting a, a widow. And so the Sadducees come with this, this interesting question for Jesus. And, and it's, it's funny because it's just like, the perps are lining up to ask Jesus these questions. He dealt with the Pharisees last week. David talked about the whole thing with, you know, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And, and Jesus answers by rendering to God what's God and rendering to Caesar what is uh, Caesar's. And now the Sadducees come to him. And because Mark gives a little description of, of the difference between the Sadducees and some of these other professional religious groups, I thought it might be helpful if we talked a little bit about who the Sadducees are so that you can get the sort of the lay of the contextual land here. So the word Sadducee actually comes from the Hebrew word Sadakim, and the word Sadakim literally means holy ones. So right out of the gate, you're kind of going, ah, that seems a little pretentious. I mean, you know, you get a group to, uh, of people together, and you say, what are we going to call ourselves? Well, let's call ourselves the holy ones, okay? Make sure everybody else knows their place in this situation. Uh, the Sadducees are interesting because they represented about 10% of the professional religious class. They were small, especially compared to the Pharisees who represented uh, 70 or 80% of the religious class, the rest being the scribes and the lawyers. But the Sadducees were also the wealthiest of the professional religious class and as such then had great prominence and majority influence on the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of high priests for the temple in Jerusalem. So th they had great influence, if you want to put it this way, they, were on, they, they had great influence on their elder board, primarily because they had some wealth. A and you need to know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along. Now, they did have many things in common. They, they were both Jewish, they both loved Israel, they, they loved the temple, they both wanted glory for Israel, and they both seemed to like Yahweh to some extent. 
But they did not like each other because they loved their own power, prestige, position, and status better than anything, even better than God. They loved their own power, prestige, position, and status. And they always saw each other as sort of a threat to that, to that power and that influence. But now Jesus becomes a bigger threat. So now it's almost like the Sadducees and the Pharisees are kind of lining up. It's the old, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation where they're, they're kind of lining up together. Anyway, as Mark says, this is really important. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the righteous on the final day. They didn't believe in the resurrection at all. The Pharisees did. But the Sadducees didn't. They were nihilist or nihilists of sorts. Before uh, nihilism was even cool, before anybody even talked about nihilism as a philosophical school or a philosophical worldview, and you, you get to be cool and sit around coffee shops and talk about how we came from nothing and we're going to nothing and isn't that cool and life is meaningless and all that. They were that before it was even cool 2,000 years ago. And they believed there was no resurrection, that just you went to nothing Primarily because their primary scriptures, you know, we talk about the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible, and then there's the prophets and the history books and the wisdom books, and there's, there's 39 of these books. But the, the Sadducees really only focused on the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That, that was their Bible. And, and they sort of dismissed or marginalized all the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophets and the historical books. And, and the, the Torah um, didn't really talk about the resurrection. It mostly ignored the issue even though in the prophets we find lots and lots of passages about the resurrection. Here, here's one right here from Daniel chapter 12. If, if I think we have this, yeah. So at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been, been since there was a nation till that, uh, till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those, uh, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there's a, there's a passage that talks about the resurrection of the righteous uh, on the last day. And, and there are other texts, too, that talk about this. There's texts in Isaiah. There's texts in Ezekiel. It's very clear in these other texts that there is a resurrection, and that's why uh, the Pharisees believed in it. Um, the Sadducees, though, focused primarily on the Pentateuch, and so they, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection. By the way, if you want more help on this, N.T. Wright has two excellent, helpful books on this. One of them is uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God, and the other one is Surprised by Hope. And, and he really uh, unpacks a lot of what's going on with the Sadducees and the Pharisees back in this time while also talking about eschatology, you know, the, the idea of end times and, and what happens there. And, and Wright asserts two reasons that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The first one I've already mentioned. They, they only were interested in the Pentateuch, the first five books. But here's the second reason the Sadducees didn't like the doctrine of the resurrection. They found through their experience that people who believed in the resurrection were inspired to act without fear. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus has one admonition for his people that outdistances every other admonition. 
What is it? Do not be afraid. Fear not. That's exactly right. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The Sadducees were afraid of people who were not afraid. And the reason they were afraid of them is because they tended to be the ones that would stand up to the Roman government and the Roman oppression, which would create problems for the Jewish ruling council of which the Sadducees were in charge of, and the Sadducees had their power from, and they didn't want their power base being messed with by these people who were not afraid. And so the doctrine of the resurrection they found, here's the translation, the doctrine of the resurrection threatened the Sadducees' power, status, and position. Some things never change. Even today, the resurrection is a challenging truth-to-power issue. And of course, the Sadducees saw Jesus as an even bigger threat because not only did he believe in the resurrection, but he was saying, I am going to be resurrected. And then he even went so far in John as to say, I am the resurrection. And he who comes to me will not perish, but will have everlasting life. <laughs> so this just must have driven the Sadducees mad with Jesus running around. Now what's of interest when we get to the answer in verses 24 through 27, what's really of interest is that Jesus doesn't go to the prophets, any of these obvious texts, to make his case about the resurrection. Instead, he goes to the Pentateuch and he uses the Pentateuch, the very scriptures of the Sadducees against the Sadducees in his answer. This is absolutely brilliant. We'll get there in a minute. One last thing, this is interesting too. As a, as a religious party, the Sadducees started around the second century B.C. And they were done, completely obliterated. They were just done by the end of the first century A.D., which was after what event? The resurrection of Jesus. Seems that they couldn't hang in the midst of that. So let me reread this question now that they come and ask. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection when they rise again. Whose wife shall we be? This just sounds like kind of a ridiculous question. A little bit too exaggerated for maybe our taste. Uh, one of the theories is that they've been watching Jesus teach in parables. And so they decided, well, let's try a parable-like question for Jesus. The, the difference, of course, is that they don't supply the answer the way Jesus does. But maybe they were trying a, a parable. One scholar I read says it even kind of sounds like a Dr. Seuss narrative, if you think about it. That's, that's what it sounds like. Hans Baer, who is a New Testament scholar, writes this. And he's referencing now again, he's looking ahead to that answer that Jesus gives in verses 24 through 27. He writes, when you ask a question from the standpoint of the knowledge and power of man and not the knowledge of the scriptures and the power of God, you will ask foolish, overstated questions. They're asking questions not from the knowledge of the scriptures or the power of God, but from their own inflated knowledge, and so they ask foolish questions overstated questions. I've always thought this question was a little bit like that um, vexing woodchuck question that we were presented with in elementary school. You know, it's like they come to Jesus and they say, hey man, we got a question for you. Um, how many Baptists could John the Baptist baptize or John the Baptist could baptize Baptists, huh Jesus? <laughs> got you now. Got you now, my brother. Now let me tell you something. This is really important. We can stand here like I just did, full admission, and make fun of these guys. 
It's so easy to stand here 2,100 years later with guys like N.T. Wright guiding us and make fun of these guys. But one of the things that you and I need to, need to do consistently when we're reading and studying Scripture is read us into the story. Where are we in this story? And, and just a little hint here, you're not Jesus and neither am I, okay? So where do we fit in this story? Where do I fit in this story? I'm a perp. I'm a professional religious person. So even though I look at this and go, well, this is just so obvious, I have to stop and ask, what are the blind spots in my life? What are the blind spots in my ministry? If Jesus showed up today and said, Frank, that was a medium sermon, (laughs) where would Jesus come and, and try correction with me? It's not that Jesus hates the Sadducees. He loves the Sadducees. He died for the Sadducees if the Sadducees would only see the truth of the Scriptures and the power of God and the life and the hope that it gives. And furthermore, in full disclosure, in the Apocrypha, which is a group of books that didn't quite make it into our Bible but are still somewhat important books in the history of our faith, there is a book called Tobit, And in chapter 3, there is actually this issue. Some woman had married seven men. So so in fairness to the Sadducees, maybe that's where they're coming up with this this question, this idea. And and the Pharisees had already ruled on this, by the way. Because the Pharisees believe in the resurrection, they actually had ruled on this. They they said, we have, at at, at some point in time, they said, we have a ruling on this issue. Uh, The woman is going to be, in the resurrection, the woman's going to be married to her first husband. That was... That was their ruling. But at the same time, I'm going to swing back the other way now. I want you to consider this as well, and I think this is key. The Sadducees, because they were coming from the standpoint of the power of man and the knowledge of man and not the knowledge of scriptures and the power of man, they came and and really they wanted it both ways with Jesus. How many of you would like it both ways with Jesus? Every one of you. I do too. We are constantly trying to mold and bend Jesus to fit our agenda. We want it both ways. And that's exactly what the Sadducees were doing. Notice how even though the Sadducees reject the reality of the resurrection, somehow they fancy themselves as experts on the resurrection. Isn't that interesting? If they didn't believe in the resurrection, what did it matter? Why should this even be a question? They claim to know that in the resurrection, marriage will exist. Well, now Jesus comes with his answer. Verses 24 through 27, and Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? This is the first of two times he uses this word in this passage. This is really important because this is pretty straightforward language for Jesus. You don't find this just anywhere. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's why originally my big idea was if you know the scriptures and the power of God, you won't be wrong. For when they rise from the dead, They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That little, I I believe that's kind of a shot from Jesus to the Sadducees, and I'll explain that in a minute. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses your own scriptures that you profess to know more than anybody? Have you not read in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Is, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So Jesus comes, and he says to the Sadducees, I'd never want to be in league with your God. 
Because apparently your God is the God of the dead. And the one true God is the God of the living and offers hope. That's a really important point. See, Jesus takes it as axiomatic. He takes it as self-evident. He takes it as obvious that the patriarchs and the prophets were still alive and they were with the Father. They were with Yahweh. The way it's stated by Moses in, in Exodus is not past tense. God does not tell Moses, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I am still in relationship with these guys because they are with me now. You cannot be in relationship with a dead person. I suppose you can think you can, but you really can't. See, Jesus says that resurrected bodies are like bodies of angels. Now, here's what's funny. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They also didn't believe in angels. That's why I think that's Jesus kind of, you know, just right in their eyes, (laughs) mentioning the angels too, okay? And he says, so in the resurrection, there's going to be no marriage and there's going to be no sexual relations. Now, This is where we get into all the questions. So I need to spend a little bit of time here, seriously, because right out of the gate, I mean, most, there are people, I'll talk about marriage in a minute because people talk about that, but man, oh man, in our hypersexualized culture right away, this this becomes a big one. What, uh, uh, no sexual, how could it possibly be heaven then if there's no sexual relations? I seriously, I get that question all the time. And and I I know this isn't a very satisfactory answer, but it's, it's just, It's the limitation of the fallen, finite human mind that can't imagine anything better than we already have. So let's say, this is an example that that I appreciate because it's happened to me several times that Randy Alcorn uses. Let's say you've never flown first class and you board and you're you're sitting in your coach seat, you know, the one where your ears, your, your, your knees are up around your ears and everybody's overflowing into your seat and you're overflowing into their seat and, and the flight attendant comes over and says, uh, we're gonna offer you a free upgrade to the, the way things are, are, are today on the flight. We're gonna offer you a free upgrade to first class. Would you like to come up to first class? Who's gonna turn that down? I never have. I, when I was in the marketplace, um, Jackie and I were traveling for business and we went through about a year and a half with the old America West Airlines uh, when they were flying to JFK where every single flight to New York, they were upgrading us for free to first class. Yes, we're in. Yes, thank you. Okay? Even though we didn't know the first time what first class would be like, we'd never fl- we said yes. We're gonna- Obviously, it has to be better. Okay? D- do, you- do you get the illustration there? Do you see that? So- somebody's going to say, no, I don't want to go up to first class. I prefer to be back here with my knees taped to my ears, three broken pretzels, and no blankie. I mean, I just... You know, and by the way, free Wi-Fi up in first class now. $29.99 if you're flying American Airlines for Wi-Fi. You see, we think that sex is everything. That sexual relations is everything. We can't imagine that there would be something that God would produce, that God would bless us with, that would be better than that. And this is, gosh, this is so interesting to me. Again, it's just... 
It's constantly in the public square, in the public sphere. It's constantly on the internet. It's in every television show. It's on Fox News. It's on MSNBC. You, it's on every billboard. You can't turn anywhere without being bombarded with, with this whole sex issue. And what's fascinating to me about this issue is that at the same time, everybody in, in the world is telling us sex is absolutely meaningless, therefore we shouldn't be upset about how anybody does it, when anybody does it, why anybody does it, or who anybody does it with, because it's completely meaningless, it doesn't mean anything, but at the same time, it means everything. You're not allowed to tell anybody who to do it with, when to do it, how to do it. You can't have an opinion about anybody's sexuality because it means everything and you're an oppressor and you're a bigot and you're a discriminator if you tell anybody that you have an opinion about their sexual behavior. So at the same time, it means nothing and it means everything. We live in a schizophrenic culture right now that has lost its direction and Jesus is the true north and has our direction for us. And Jesus says, oh, there's not going to be any sexual relations. You're, you're so worried about sex down here, but up here in the kingdom of God, I'm sorry, I say up here, down here in the new Jerusalem, it's not going to matter. You're going to have new resurrected bodies, and you're going to, it's not even going to be a thought. It's not even going to be a, a remembrance for you. It's going to be so much better. But then you get to this next issue, the marriage thing. And I've had, I literally, I've had people, we spent an hour on this at the preaching collective. What do we do about this marriage thing? It's terrible. I love my marriage. All, of the, all the guys are saying, ah, I don't know. I've thought a lot about this. Ever since I became a Christian, I've thought about this. I love my marriage to Jackie. I love Jackie. I like being around her. She's not just my wife. She's my best friend. I already miss her in a human sense thinking about the new Jerusalem. So there's no marriage but not in the human sense. Rather, it's a covenant relationship between the resurrected person and God. And you and I get a little taste of that right now, but it is nothing compared to what it's going to be like. It's going to be absolutely magnificent. It's gonna, the covenant relationship between God and us as resurrected people is going to be first class and better. You see, our resurrected bodies will be different, and they're going to be better. Let me read a couple passages to, to you out of the two letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Here you go. Know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into, with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, can you feel your outer self wasting away? Okay, my brothers and sisters, I'm 56. It happens. Just, just take it from me. Though we feel our outer self wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day by the gospel. For this light momentary affliction, this suffering that we now feel with our earthly bodies, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We can't even compare it to first class. As we look not to the things that are, that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. We look around and we see all this stuff. This stuff isn't going to be here. What's going to be here in the New Jerusalem is God, His Word, and His people. It's going to be awesome. For the things that are unseen are eternal. And then he writes this. 
There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly body is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. We're going to have imperishable bodies, perfect bodies. It is sown in dishonor. Our bodies are sown in corruption and sin. It is, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We're going to have a first-class resurrected body. So what comes of this for us? I want to close with a couple of questions and, a, and an exhortation All three of them come right from those last four verses, Jesus' answer. Here's the first one. Do we know the Scripture? Jesus goes to the Sadducees, who were supposedly experts in the Scripture, and he tells them, your greatest weakness is that you don't know the Scriptures. Do we know the Scriptures? Here's another great irony. We live in an era, and I would say, I'm not even talking about people who don't attend church and people who don't consider themselves Christians, we live in an era where biblical illiteracy is as low as it's ever been. We don't, we don't know the Bible, and, but not only do we not know the Bible, but the vast majority of Christians, read the research on this, the vast majority of Christians do not believe that the Bible is authoritative, but believe it is merely just another voice in the sea of voices that can give us helpful input. That it's not authoritative. And a lot of that, I think, is, again, driven by this this pressure that we would be tolerant and, and we make these exclusive claims in the church because of Scripture and because of Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. By the way, here's the tension that we live in as Christians. Just know this. We are exclusive when it comes to truth claims. I don't, I don't apologize for that. We have exclusive truth claims. But that means that we also practice, practice inclusive love practices. The church has to have exclusive truth claims, but, but practice inclusive love practices. And, and we live in the midst of that tension. We don't get to say, oh, we're just going to be tolerant. Here, here's the problem with tolerance. The, prob- the problem with tolerance for tolerance sake is that it neither pursues holiness nor redeems brokenness. It doesn't do either. Tolerance merely stands on the sidelines and does nothing at all. And that's a problem. Do we know the Scriptures? And are we going to allow the, tr- the Scriptures to transform who we are? What Paul says at the beginning of Romans chapter 12. And so one of the challenges that we have is to actually get people to read the Scriptures and just, just read it. Just please read it. Read the Scriptures and allow the Scriptures to, to wash over you. And, and, and listen, I'm, don't even worry about them being authoritative. Just read it because you could see how good they are. And I know the, the reaction I get from this is, but, but it's daunting. It's a big book. It's complicated. It's complex. There's a lot to try to keep track of. But here's the beautiful thing about God's Word, about this, this right here, about the Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired this. It was written by the Holy Spirit through his people. And if you ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate it for you, the Holy Spirit will also guide you through it. He wrote it. 
and he'll take you through it. He wrote it to us. He wrote it for us, and he will lead us through it and illuminate it so that we can begin to understand it. It's God writing to you, God helping you, God leading you. And that leads to reading it not just for information but for transformation. Here's the second question. Do you know the power of God? Do we know the power of God? This whole thing for Jesus really, that marriage thing was completely secondary to Jesus in the midst of, the, uh, of his conversation about the resurrection because the resurrection really is everything. It's where we get life and hope. And that only comes from the power of God. If there's no power of God, there is no resurrection. So do we know the power of God or do we claim not to know God at all? Um, I, I read this a couple weeks ago. I just keep going back to this because I think it's important. Paul says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You and I suppress the truth. When our, our daughters were little, somebody gave them a jack-in-the-box. It's never a present. I would get my own kid. It's just too noisy, but... You know, dun, 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 and then pretty, uh, within 30 seconds, they figured out if you just held your hand on it, you could just keep cranking it. Boom, boom. They're suppressing what's there. They're suppressing the little thing that pops out, okay? And then thankfully, they broke it. Um, <laughs> you can't suppress what you, what you already have. You're suppressing something that you have. You listen to the testimonies of, of atheists and agnostics who have come to Christ, and here's what they will tell you. In seminary and in Bible school, we had to learn all these teleological arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And I'm not saying those are bad things, but I have never argued anybody into belief in Jesus using the teleological argument for the existence of God. Never been done. You know how it happens? You talk to somebody like C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, he said, I, I finally just gave my life over to what I already knew to be true but was trying to suppress. The Holy Spirit worked in his life. You talk to any atheist or any, any um, agnostic who comes to Christ and they'll tell you pretty much the same story. It's not these arguments that we have. Scientists and researchers, act, uh, researchers actually explain this. Uh, psychology researchers, mostly from Ivy League schools, mostly from Harvard, have found that people have what are known as ground-level beliefs and second-level beliefs. We all have these, ground-level beliefs and second-level beliefs, and, and they're what cause the vast majority of cognitive dissonance in our life. In other words, when two thoughts don't agree with each other and, and it creates tension in our lives. So a ground-level belief are things that we know inherently to be true, but many of them we don't like because they're uncomfortable or, or they don't line up with, the, with what our worldview is. We'd rather they weren't true, but we know inherently they're, they're, that, that they're true. Second-level beliefs are often less true, sometimes they're not even true at all, but we use second-level beliefs as rationalization or justification to disprove or disbelieve our ground-level beliefs that we don't like. In other words, we use our second-level beliefs to argue against ourselves in our ground-level beliefs. This is the internal tension that's always going on in the midst of us. So here's an example. A, a kid starts high school. And after the first semester of high school, their parents are called in, and, and the administration says, uh, we, we, we found that your child is, is cheating on tests and plagiarizing. 
And, and it's interesting because the parents know inherently, they have an inkling that that's probably true, but they don't want to deal with it. They don't want, that, they don't want to have to have that reality out in front of them, and so they, they, they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be confronted with the truth. And so second-level beliefs kick in to disprove it to the school administration. So they tell the administration, no, the other kids are just jealous of their, their child. Their child is not getting a fair hearing, and, and the child is being set up for a failure. And so the parents take the child out of that school, and they put them in a new high school, and at the end of that semester, guess what happens? happens. They get a phone call from the administration. Hey, we, we believe your child is cheating and plagiarizing. <laughs> no, no, they're not. Second level beliefs overcoming ground level beliefs. Jesus is saying the power of God is a ground, ground level belief. And rather than fighting it, rather than trying to suppress it, we need to push into it. We need to lean into it. And then once we acquiesce to the truth of God, believing in God gives us access to his power. And then we say, well, power for what? To get our own way? Absolutely not. The power we have then is to do what Jesus did, to humbly submit to the cross and live a life of hope because of the resurrection and live a life of humble servanthood in our community to our neighbors, loving our neighbors. And further, once we lean into the power of God, we begin to lean into genuine wisdom, understanding, insight, and knowledge. It's, it's that it's all over the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That word wisdom in Hebrew literally means competency in life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of competency in life. I love word studies, especially this one, that word that Jesus uses in verse 24 and 27, wrong. He says, you are wrong. Here's why you're wrong. You are quite wrong. It's the Greek word planin. We get the word planet from it, from that word. Literally, that, mean, that word means you are out there. <laughs> That's what it means. You're way off track. You're way out there. You have been led astray. And those are characteristics of people who do not know God's word nor God's power. And that leads to this final exhortation. We need to live with the understanding that Jesus is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And that gives us real hope. And that's what the resurrection is really all about. You, you and I, you, you, human beings, you know, you know what we spend most of our life, we're trying to figure out a way around, a way through, a way over, or a way under death. My father lived to be 94 years old. He was convinced he was going to be the one person that defeated death. He was going to figure it out. And he tried everything, man. He didn't even make it as, as far as his old man made it. His, his father made it to 100 years old. We, we are con So what do we, oh, I'm going to work out. I'm going to be in great shape. Uh, we're going to kill ourselves working out. We're, we're going we're gonna to eat right. We're going we're to eat right. We're going to eat organic. We're... we're I, I know, I'm going to stay single. It seems like old, uh, married people get... Damn. No, 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 I've read research that says that married people live longer. I'm going to get married. I know, I'm going to go live in Hawaii because, I mean, with the weather and the stress-free environment there, obviously you can live a long time there. I'm going to go to Scottsdale and go to Alcor and get frozen. That's what I'm going to do. Or if you're in Arcadia, you say, uh, you know what, I'm going to live forever because I'm only going to drink craft beer and smoke craft cigarettes. That's how I'm going to do it, Okay. <laughs> We're all trying to figure this out. But we all know that death is going to have the final say. Or does it? See, this is where the hope and the life comes. Was death able to contain Jesus? Absolutely not. 
Paul says it this way, O death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? That's hope, and it's only in Jesus. Why are grave sites of religious and heroic figures venerated, but Jesus's isn't? You ever thought about that? You know why? He's not there. He's not there. Great leaders, great religious leaders, they die. People make pilgrimages to go to their their graves, to visit their body. Nobody does that with Jesus because he's not there. Up from the ground he arose. Paul says it this way in Romans, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, nor over those who are in him. Romans 5, for if because of one man's trespass, one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Even Jesus says it himself. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's what happened at the cross. And that's what gives us hope. And that's what allows us to be able to trust the word of God and to be able to lean into the power of God and we can live a life that honors him and honors others. Let's pray together. Josh will come and lead us into our time of communion. Lord God, we thank you for this truth and we thank you for the hope of life and resurrection. God, let that be a reality to us. Let us live our lives as reality of resurrected people that we do not live in fear, but that we live as a testimony and and as a witness of your grace and your love and your power. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.